Welcome to Sticky Beak, Episode 9, the final chapter of the tale of Mark Hunter Vincent. This three-part episode has been brought to you by my new sponsor, JPEX Financial Group in Glastonbury, Connecticut, where Carol and Jamie offer customized strategies and objective advice personally designed to help you reach your financial objectives. Investors, families, and retirees receive personal and distinctive service, and the focus is always on you. Please check out www.raymondjames.com backslash Financial. As always, you can get more information on Doreen and my fight to get her justice by joining the Sticky Beaks Facebook group or by emailing me at justicefordory at gmail.com. Here's part three of the tale of Mark Hunter Vincent, The Blood and the Buddha. At the end of part two of this tale, Snow Peas and Ashes, Brad's words had been a little harsh. I asked him what Doreen being gone forever, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, meant for Doreen's mother, who wants, who deserves, to have some place to bury her child. Brad's a big supporter of mine, but that doesn't always mean we see eye to eye. Sometimes, and I think rightfully so, Brad gets a little frustrated. I don't have those same questions. You know, uh, finding her uh, not as important to me as getting him behind bars. I'd, I'd much rather see him. Doreen's bones now are, are, you know, disintegrated somewhere below the earth. So I'm not sure what, what finding that does. Uh, I'm not one of those that believes that it gives peace or closure, you know, that type of stuff. I, I don't believe that. She's dead and buried somewhere since 87 or 88. So... That, to me, doesn't matter. I'd rather see that piece of shit get shot or get behind bars. But to me, at this point, I give you lots of credit, but it seems like it's just a a huge uphill battle since you have no support. You can't, I don't see how you do this on your own. Mother Lori's death from cancer on September 4th, 2007, didn't provide the Vincent family with a chance for reconciliation with Mark either. Lori had carefully excised Mark from her estate, being careful to leave him $500. That purposeful and pointed move was calculated to avoid a challenge in probate court, to keep Mark from claiming that somehow he'd been forgotten. Well, he'd definitely been remembered, just not in the way that he thought he deserved. The family was cleaning out the house in Bethel when he came tearing into the driveway Mark Vincent style, demanding his rightful share, and maybe, just maybe, the hint of an idea that despite everything, his mother had forgiven him. Denied that, he left in a rage, and that was the last time Mark's siblings saw him. Being totally estranged from his family didn't mean Mark didn't have support, however. In the late 90s or early 2000s, he joined Teen Challenge Connecticut in New Haven after finding himself on the street, kicked out of the house he shared with third wife Kathy and son David, and allegedly close to death. Word is that he was addicted to heroin, but many people close to this story doubt that, telling me Mark was never a drug addict. He's been there ever since, 
working as the organization's general contractor, mostly flipping mansions donated to Teen Challenge into apartments. In January 2003, Mark and his lawyer made a bid to the Wallingford cops that Mark would impart information relevant to his daughter's disappearance for full immunity. The stage was set for the prosecutor to take his statement, the cops told me, but all of a sudden they balked and the deal fell apart. It was that same month that Mark moved into Teen Challenge for good. In referring to this event, people generally use the word confession, but I see it as something else. I think Mark was trying to hint that there were other people involved, that while he might have known what happened, it was ultimately someone else's fault, and he was going to throw that person under the bus. And given the photos Mark had been taking of Doreen and admitting to handing out, my interest was piqued. Not everyone is on board with this theory. Here's Doreen's Uncle Joe. I don't believe that at all, but... What, the sex ring thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Even with Mark being the, the guy that we know him to be? I don't know. I guess maybe. You think, uh, he, I, think, I don't know. I think he was too overprotective of Doreen to let her get in there. He wouldn't even want to wear a fucking dress that was above her knees. Why would he send her off to fuck other guys? Doreen's Aunt Carol didn't believe it either. I bet he wouldn't let anybody else get close to her. I don't know. I, I can't picture him. I can't picture him telling on. I can't imagine unless the other people were involved and he, you know, kind of prostituted her. Well, I can't picture him doing that either because he was such a psycho with her. Right. And he was a psycho with Donna when she was younger, you know? Okay. That was his prize. But I couldn't get a second guy out of my head. And that voice only got louder when I listened to the session with Vanessa, one of the psychics hired by the family. It looks like a good half hour, 45 minutes, or maybe even hour before he realized she's not in the house. It looks like, like, let's pretend here was the house and here's the road. It looks like she got out of the side of the house somehow. He's back here. He was outside. He didn't know she got out. And, um... But she goes this way, and she's heading up a road this way. It looks like the road goes this way, and then there's a busier road this way. Does that make sense? But it looks like she heads up more of a quieter street to more of a main road. I think Mark got in the car looking for her, and he was just enraged. A, because she wasn't listening to him. He drank? Because I am actually see him drinking. It doesn't look like hard liquor, but it looks like beer. Okay, that's just my, my take of what he's yeah. doing. I think he had to go outside and have one or two just to, like, calm him, calm himself down. I am seeing him reach for a phone. doesn't look like a cell phone, obviously, but he's reaching for a phone and he's calling somebody else. So he's, um, he's now he's really on fire because he thinks that, you know, she's going to go missing. It's going to be his fault. And, but this is also maybe a good opportunity to take care of something else, you know. But I do see him calling a guy. And there's a guy that comes, and um, I think he picks... He doesn't get in his own car. He's not in his own car. He's in a different car. Did he drive a truck at that time? I see a bigger vehicle that it looks like he normally would drive, but this looks like a car that comes and um, gets him, picks him up, and I see them driving down the road slowly, and they're driving. And the more he's driving and trying to find her, the more, you know, he's like crazy. Um, I'm just picking it up with a sound to it, so it's a something. They found her. There were two men, so whatever I said before, I think I was accurate with, but I'm seeing two men, and I think that she was, they found her walking. By now, it looks like a little bit dark. It doesn't look like daytime. I want to say maybe around seven, 
It doesn't look like it's really terribly late. She gave him a hard time. She didn't want to get in the car. I think he lost his mind and he lost control. As I see her getting in the car, it looks like she got in the back seat, like he threw her in the back seat, and he got in the back seat with her, and there's somebody else driving the car. But I see him actually punching her in the head, like a punch. Not, this isn't a shove. This is one of these. And I think she got knocked out or pretty close to it. Or she could have hit her head or something in the car, because she's looking like this right now to me. But I think that um, the, by what I'm seeing here, because this is the remote viewing part, I'm seeing just really wailing the daylights out of her. I don't think it was an intentional act to kill her, but I think he killed her. And I, I see a lifeless body kind of beat up looking, and now it's like, fuck, that's what I'm seeing right now. So somebody was in cahoots with this. It was more head trauma than anything, because I'm asking her, I said, did the other man rape you? Did, was there anything crazy like that? She said, no, no rape. Her clothes were all on. Every, you know, it was the, it was the head to the head to the head. I think Mark just totally saw red, you know? That's my, my words, not hers. She gave him a fight back, you know? She didn't just sit there. She, when she was kind of a half, she, she's showing me herself kind of going like this, 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 you know? She was trying to defend herself, but he's awfully strong. And the guy, whoever was driving this car, was just going, holy shit, holy shit, you know, you got to stop. So the guy was encouraging him to stop, but um, the man doing this to this girl just was in this, like, mode. She told me that he's been lying. All of it. She yeah. said he lies, and she said he's been lying, and he lied about this whole thing. Mm -hmm. She does not think of him as a dad. That's what she just told me. That was like... She said, I don't think of him as my dad. I think of him as a stranger. And Vanessa had more to say. She told me he hasn't told a soul. The man driving the car, whoever he was, nobody's ever said a peep. It was never talked about again, even between the two of them. And I'm not sure those two even saw each other after this. The guy who was driving was pleading with the, the person who was hitting here. He was pleading with him to stop. Didn't. Let me state clearly that I don't necessarily put stock in psychics, and I can't tell you either way whether Vanessa's vision bears even the slightest hint of truth. But it did make Dorian's family sit up and take notice, because those two names, the names you just heard blanked out, were very familiar to them. They were the first names of two of Mark's best friends from Bethel, whom I will call Dave and Doug. The family was quick to send me Dave and Doug's full names and the bits of contact information they'd been able to dig up. I called those numbers, and any other numbers I could find, but Dave and Doug were in the wind. Later, knowing that the family had clued the Wallingford PD in on the names as well, I'd asked then-Detective Michael Colavolpe if he'd been able to locate either or both men, and whether he'd gathered anything interesting. Oh yeah, we talked to those guys, Mike told me. It ended up being worthless and a bit boring, to tell you the truth. How many times, Mike asked, can you hear about how Mark Vincent is a bad guy? Again, I can't tell you that Mark was involved in what happened to Doreen any more than I can say he had help or that he's covering up for somebody else. But there is one thing I do know. It was only after Joe, my husband and producer, raised the possibility of another guilty person with Mark and named names that Mark completely lost his shit on Joe and cut off contact completely where there had been an underlying sense that Mark had had all the control in his exchanges with Joe, 
he suddenly lashed out like he'd lost a piece, and he never spoke to us again. In February 2020, as I was pressing the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission to grant me access to the rest of the PD's file, Detective Colavolpe testified that the state had declared Doreen's case a homicide and that the department was preparing an application for an arrest warrant for a male suspect. While the specter of Mark Vincent hung in the hearing room, his name was never mentioned. Like I've said, though, I've been able to keep up with Mark's comings and goings from my sources at Teen Challenge Connecticut pretty well. Mark didn't have a lot of friends, they told me, but one stood out, Pastor Rick Welch, the center's director. Here's Dennis. What I don't understand is Pastor Rick. I was in Vermont, and I used to live up there at a house, land up there somewhere. Pastor Rick has always been so nice and everything and graceful. He's been very good to me, but I can't understand. We can't figure out what this attachment to Mark is. Even though he went through, through the program with him. Many of the men had stories about Mark's infamous temper, and I asked one if Mark had ever actually abused him. Verbally came the answer. I've never really seen anything physical. But when we worked with him, he would, like, throw nails and tools in my direction. It wasn't really anything I took as trying to hurt me. But I had only known him like a week at the time. Looking back, it's interesting. He seemed to be more passive with his aggression. Now, at least. Like, he's a pretty frail guy now. I'd heard that from other sources at Teen Challenge, too. That Mark has undergone multiple surgeries on his knees, or his hips or maybe his knees and hips, and that he's in pretty rough shape. I also heard that he recently dyed his usually gray hair black, and that he'd taken to shying away from the driving responsibilities, a far cry from when he used to try to wrestle away the keys from people like Dennis. Mark has pretty much been a homebody, the Teen Challenge source continued. He stays in his room, which is on the third floor of the house he's in. He goes to his church which I'm like 95% positive was Grace Baptist Church in Milford. Wait, what, I asked? He doesn't go to church with Pastor Rick and all the Teen Challenge guys? No, my source wrote, he never went with us to any of the churches we attended. But Mark did have a thing for proselytizing, and it was always with Teen Challenge's new recruits. He likes to bring up how we're new, my source told me, and changed by the blood of Christ. Almost every time I talked to him, he would. Which, in a Christian ministry, the source admitted, isn't too far out of place. But knowing his past, it's sketchy. I know all about the blood of the Lamb. It's a fundamental principle of Christianity speaking to Jesus' death by crucifixion, where the blood he shed was assigned to God, the Father, that he had fulfilled God's will, that Jesus was to die to take away the sins of the world. Jesus was the shepherd, but he was also the sacrificial lamb. When I was a kid, logging my years at St. Mary's in Meriden, I had just missed the nuns, but the strict women taking over made sure they hammered home the fact that we couldn't be forgiven without repentance. We all know what it feels like to want someone to look us in the face and apologize for their wrong, to hope to be forgiven. We all know the value, the importance, of a heartfelt apology. Here's Doreen's cousin Mary. I think he blocks out a lot. I think that that's his coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. That he puts himself above his past actions. That he's forgiven himself and moved on because I, I think he's brainwashed himself, so to speak. I agree. And this Teen Challenge guy said Mark is obsessed with, like, the blood of the lamb and the whole, like, washing of your spirit anew and all this stuff. And he talks about it all 
the time. And I, you know, to the point where I think that's part of the whole convincing himself that he's like, you know, right with Jesus. Um, and I, I was raised in a Catholic family. I haven't been religious for a long time, but I know you're supposed to repent. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't get the forgiveness if you don't repent, right? Like, yep. I also brought the concept of being washed in Jesus's blood up to Brad. They said he's very into the blood of the lamb. I mean, you're, you were raised Christian, right? Just like I was. No, no, no. None of us were raised Christian. Oh. Oh. None of us. Our parents, our parents were basically uh, non-affiliated. We there was a Universal Unitarian Church we went to for a while. Mostly they were agnostics. You know, I, we were not raised Christian at all. Do you know about the blood of the lamb? Do you know that concept? Uh, not really. I mean, I've heard the term, but. It's one of those things that it, it just kind of falls in the I don't give a crap pile. So the blood of the lamb basically means that like Jesus's blood washes you clean. So you can commit a sin and then Jesus's blood washes you clean. But the point is that you have to ask for forgiveness, right? You have to repent. Like you can't just do something and sin and be okay, you have to repent. And the guys that teach- everybody the out, yeah. What? I said that gives everybody that does bad things the out. Yeah, okay. Okay, right, so Jesus, say Jesus exists and you pray to him, right? But I guess this is Mark's big thing. This is what he talks to all the new guys at Teen Challenge about. He, that's all he wants to talk about is the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. It. It washes you in the blood of Christ, and you're okay because you... It's a way to get away from every sin you've ever done. Yep. Okay, that sounds like Mark. Brad is right to be frustrated because the story I'm telling you, the story you're listening to right now, Brad has already heard it a million times over. Well, but how much more can you do? I mean, you've probably sensed that I've, I've given up. Even after everything you've done, you know, it was kind of gung-ho for a while, but there's only so much you can do if nobody else is going to do a damn thing. What you've done is an amazing job of uncovering lots of stuff, but it still comes back to him as you haven't told me anything I don't already know or have suspected or anything. It, it's You're actually confirming what I've often thought, you know, especially over the years that we haven't talked, right? I mean, Mark and I don't talk. So it is kind of amazing in a sense that he is still exactly the same. At at some point, I thought, like when he showed up in California, okay, stupid me, you know, in the late 80s, that maybe he was different, you know, give him a chance, blah, blah, blah. But even now, and this is many, many years later, it's still the same crap. Okay. Yeah, he's just a walking piece of garbage. I, I don't know how else to say it. Here's what I want for him, Brad. I want him to fuck up. Because look, I'm not going to. In one sense, he's, he's, in one sense, he's too smart for that. He, because he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, feel any, 
emotion or any anything about what he's done to others. It, he can justify in his own mind everything he's ever done horribly to other people. It's always their fault or God told him to do it or whatever. He's comfortable with that. That's the problem with getting him to try to confess or anything else. He, there's nothing to confess. It's the other person's fault. You mean like he thinks it's Doreen's fault? Everything is somebody else's fault. Doreen's death is Doreen's fault. It's not Mark's fault. That, that's why he will never, ever confess. He Because it, everything he's ever done was caused by somebody else. His reaction, his actions were caused by somebody else. He has no personal responsibility. So you don't think there's any way for me to, like, shake his tree and fuck him up? Like, here's... Nope. Okay, so here's one of the things that maybe you haven't thought of. Maybe you have. Um, I know he's scared to death of jail. He will be worse in jail if he's a pedophile and if he's a child murderer. So How do you get him there? Um, I think Paul is, is probably the best chance, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't Paul the, got the most on Who has the most on him that will put him there? He's not going to put himself there. Paul Vincent has been on my mind a lot recently. I'd gotten to know him a bit back in early 2019, when Mark's ex, Teresa, contacted him on Facebook and put him in touch with me. That spring, Paul and I talked a lot, always with me recording, always with him being careful to note that what I told him was off the record. Paul and his little sister Sarah had been two and three when Doreen disappeared. And Paul told me he had an eidetic or photographic memory. In June 2019, I held that gathering at Gouveia Vineyards to honor the 31st anniversary of Doreen's disappearance. Paul, out living in Ohio, was taking that weekend to move down to Florida, into the home of Teresa Lyon and her husband. I wish I could come out to Connecticut, he told me, but I don't have the extra $60 for another day of rental car. Sarah and I will give you the money, I told him. Just come. Paul sent me a photo of two Guy Fawkes masks, representing the likeness of the man best known for his attempt, in 1605, to blow up England's House of Lords. These days, Guy Fawkes has been adopted as the symbol for Anonymous, a so-called hacktivist group known for its cyber attacks on governments and corporations. If that doesn't ring a bell, maybe you've seen V for Vendetta. Remember the white mask with the rosy cheeks? The black upturned mustache? The thin black beard? That's the one. What mask should I bring? Paul asked. I laughed it off. I couldn't possibly imagine that in two days' time, Paul would drift away from the crowd gathered at Gouveia to drink wine and honor his sister, and that I would face off with Debbie against the swarm of cops sent to the farmhouse across the way. Why are you here? Debbie asked the police. Why does a peaceful gathering to remember my niece merit more cops than her disappearance ever got? She was a lot calmer than I was, considering I'd had much more than my share at Gouveia, and Debbie had to be my DD. We're here for the man in the mask, the police told us. Someone in an anonymous mask had been lingering on the long road between the vineyard and the house, just staring, when someone, I assume the present owners, had called the police. Upon the officer's approach, 
The masked man told them he was there to honor the spirit of a little girl who could no longer speak for herself. Hearing this for the first time, Debbie scoffed, but I knew exactly who they were talking about. Meeting up with Paul in the center of Wallingford to treat him to lunch at Gaetano's Tavern as I had promised, I wasn't sure whether to be angry or laugh. I tried to harness Paul's skittish, hostile energy and lead him across the street to the police station, hoping that faced with him and Debbie and maybe me together, the cops would have to listen, to respond. Debbie was game, but Paul wasn't in the mood. He was more interested in taking the waitress to task for the onions on his burger. Aunt Debbie was not impressed. I want you to hear her take on Paul, who was about to re-enter our story in a major way. Well, you know, I, I'm a skeptical person, so like, I, when I first saw him, first of all, he, he looks a lot like Mark. Um, and in the beginning, I thought he was kind of friendly. You know, he had pictures, and which I thought was very nice. Um, and then, you know, as the day progressed and you asked him to speak on the subject, uh, you know, Doreen being missing. He seemed to, like, shy away from the whole group, the whole conversation. Next thing you know, we dis- he disappeared. And, you know, police are coming down the, the driveway. And, you know, we don't know anything about him bringing the clown or whatever, the, the mask. You know, when they were guarding the street um, across from the house. Yeah. We, we, we don't know anything about that. We see, what, six police cars flying up the road. Hold on a second. Um, you know, flying up the road to break up our, our gathering, you know, like there was some disturbance. But we were just breaking up. We didn't know that, that he took off. Um, And then... uh you know, come to find out there was a masked man, you know, not threatening the police, but just saying, you know, he's going to, he's doing an investigation with the girl that went missing from that house. Uh, He said that he was there, he said he was there to represent the voice of Doreen. The voice of Doreen, yeah. So then, uh, we met him later for lunch and, uh, I don't know. He was just, to me, he was acting totally, it just, just strange. Totally in tune with what was going on, acting like he, you know, ordered a hamburger without onions and then he acted like a, a complete baby when the lady brought him <laughs> the hamburger with the onions. And then he was like, I don't know, he asked you for money. He said he didn't have enough money to go, where was he going? Florida. Oh, to be with Mark's ex, that's right. Yep. And I don't know, he was just, he was just strange to me. Just a strange guy. I didn't trust him. Did he meet us at the restaurant? Did he what? Did he meet us at the restaurant? He met you at the bank. We met him at the bank. At the bank. And at that time, we did not know he was the masked man. No, I did. What? I did because before he came, he laid out masks on a bed and he took a picture and he sent it to me and he said, which one of these masks should I wear? And I, like an idiot, just laughed it off. 
And so immediately when we got out there, remember we came out, you drove me out, remember? Yeah. Yeah. You drove me out and we were like, why the fuck are all these cop cars here? And you got out and you said there was never this police presence. And they said there was a masked man. And as soon as they said that, I thought to myself, oh, my God, because Paul had disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I think he I went. I didn't know. I didn't know that that was him until a little while later. You, you didn't say that to me. You didn't say that was him. Oh, we really? We didn't know it until you must have called him. I think you called him on the way, like, downtown, and you were going to meet him, and he said that he was the one, he was the masked man. No, I knew he was, Debbie. I'm telling you. I didn't. I didn't know that was him. I didn't know until he called you, and and I think you asked him, you know, was that you, and and he said, yeah. (laughs) And he was supposedly going down to the police station whatever I don't know what he was gonna tell him well do you remember I asked you and then he wouldn't go he wouldn't go to the police station he was afraid to go to the police station so he met us uh, at the bank do you remember when I asked you I wanted you both to go into the police station with me and you said yeah I'm totally game and he was like nah I don't want to do it Mm -hmm. it was his idea to do it though it was. Yeah. He was going to go down there and see kind of sisters we have and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, then, I, like I said, we found out that he was the masked man. <laughs> and he was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going down there. But I remember, I just remember, you know, the whole thing with the hamburger. And then, you know, he's acting like a little baby, you know, because there was uh, onions on it. And then when the other waitress came and brought him the hamburger... He, he, like, looked right at her because it was a different person. But but it seems like everything he does is, like, a little bit of an act. You know, he's totally in tune with what's going on and paying attention. But he acts like, like, like a child, like something a little kid would do. He's a strange guy. And even just taking the money from you, I thought that was a little bizarre. Who takes the money from a woman, I, you know... I just, I think you were a little bit buzzed, but. I did tell him I'd give him money. This was odd. It was very strange to me. I did tell him I'd give him money because the way that worked out was he said to me, oh, I'm going from Ohio to Florida. I really wish I could make it to Connecticut, but I can't afford a second day in my rental car. It'll be $60. And I said, oh, $60, I'll just give you that. And so Sarah DeMeo was supposed to, uh, no, not Sarah DeMeo. Sarah DeMeo was making a little bit of money off Faded Out. And I said to her, you know, Sarah, because I was just the investigator at the time. I said, I'd really like you to give $60 to Paul from your earnings to get him to Connecticut. She said, cool, whatever. Um... And then I gave him a hundred dollars at the bank, so that's sixty bucks from Sarah and forty from me. Yeah, but I just felt like that was a little bit of a uh, just just another act. You know, you don't you don't 
from Ohio and you're, you know, that's, that's very little money. Usually you have a few extra hundred dollars. You're, you're taking a long trip. If something happens, you want to be a little more prepared. I just felt like he was kind of, you and I just, and the whole, I mean, even the lunch, you know, he didn't pay for the lunch, but he was just, just too willing to complain about it. it he's just strange. He's, he's strange. But the whole time I'm thinking, he knows exactly what he's doing. He got a free hamburger. He ate half of the one until he hit the hamburger, until he hit the onions, which they were probably <laughs> in the whole thing. And then he, he ended up getting a free one. But he wouldn't talk. He made you do the talking. It, it, it was just weird, just you know, I know you were not 100%. But no, I know. Um, just all the whole eye emotions, the whole everything, the jerking of the head when he saw that lady. If you saw him turn and look right at her, because all the other time he wouldn't look anybody in the eye. I'm thinking, this guy's strange. He's just strange. He's like his, he's like his father. But his father would look you in the eye because he's more bold. Yeah. Paul is not. Paul hides behind a little boy sort of act. And he looks young. But he looks just like Mark to me. And he definitely acts like him. Maybe he is a little shy. But I don't believe that's the case. I, I don't. I think he's just a, just like his father. Secretly a con guy, you know? I I see that. I saw that and then went at the at the group and then later on you know, like I said, when we met him, we weren't really there all that long with him. I mean hours, but we weren't really talking to him. Right. The whole time. When you asked him to talk, he wouldn't talk. That's about when he bowed out too. He just kinda, you know, disappeared, went to his car. <laughs> Got his mask. Got his mask, went up to the cop, said he was going to the police station, never went. Like he said, he, you know, he's the smartest guy in the room. Oh, it's not illegal. This is not illegal what I'm doing. He said that right to the cop. Right. Because he asked him to take off the mask. What? You're not so brave that you'll go down to the police station and talk like you said you were going to. After a brief meeting with us, Paul headed off to be with Teresa Lyon in Florida. He spent only a few days there before she kicked him out, and he headed to Teen Challenge, Connecticut. To that place, I asked, with Mark? I was incredulous. Don't worry, Paul reassured me. I'm too woke to be brainwashed. And I did worry, because only a short time later, my sources at Teen Challenge told me Paul had experienced some kind of breakdown in New Haven and gotten shipped up to the Teen Challenge campus in Johnson, Vermont. Mark must know something because he brought him right to Vermont right after that. Right after that. Yeah, right after the Teresa thing, he brought him to Vermont. Yeah. And he's been there ever since. I believe Paul does know. I believe Paul could possibly know. But I, I believe he's so much like Mark that, you know, I, I don't think they'll ever know. Okay. I think he'd hold that secret for his father. I don't know why. He hasn't really done much of a father to him. Well, when he says, too, he has a photographic memory. I believe that. I, I believe that he was, you know, 
he pays attention to everything, every little detail. Um, it just seems like he does. And it seems like he thinks that he's, again, the smartest one in the room. When he's telling you, only one person knows. I wonder if he does remember sometimes. With Paul hidden away in Vermont, any chance I had of speaking to him was reduced to zero, with him failing to respond to my barrage of messages. That was until this summer when I was wasting time on Facebook and noticed Paul making cheeky comments on the page for the last podcast on the left. That's a podcast featuring three friends diving into all things true crime, but also UFOs, cryptids, ghosts, and a hefty helping of conspiracy theories. Fancy meeting you here, I commented. Not sure if this is a coincidence or stalking, he wrote back, and then quickly direct messaged me. Was a joke, he said. Honestly, I would be more surprised if you didn't follow top-rated true crime podcasts. Not having heard from him in almost two years, I decided to tread lightly when it came to Doreen, but it wasn't long at all until Paul brought her up. I never did finish listening to your show, he said suddenly. After that day at the vineyard, I just kind of fell out of reality for a while. Not even sure I'd want to finish at this point. It's ongoing, I told him. Your sister was officially declared a homicide victim last year. Well, that's something, said Paul. I knew we would likely never know exactly what happened, but any closure is better than none at all. Well, I bristled, it's not over yet. True, said Paul, but it really does seem unlikely to be truly solved. Scapegoat is my call for it. The finders were very much active around that time, sad to say. CIA-run child abduction program mostly funneled into Monarch and the high-level pedophilia rings. Look into National Park Disappearances, Franklin Credit Union, Jeffrey Epstein. I'm aware of the sex ring conspiracy theories, I told Paul. I'm also aware of Occam's razor. For those not aware, that principle holds in a nutshell, that the simplest explanation is usually the best one. Occam is great, Paul countered, as long as it doesn't come from the perspective of incredulity fallacy. He had me there. I had to look that one up. Incredulity fallacy. The sin of concluding that because you personally can't believe something, that it can't be true. Occam, Paul chided me, was never so dead set that he couldn't entertain other reasonably sound ideas. What reasonably sound ideas, I asked. Just because Mark was the easy and obvious culprit didn't mean I had blinded myself to other possibilities. Many steps needed to be taken to get where I am now to believe what I do, I wrote. You would have to believe that the finders got her right at that specific moment when Mark failed to report her missing and lied multiple times about multiple things leading up to and related to her disappearance. She's the unluckiest girl in the world. And all the stuff your mom did to help him cover his tracks when it was someone else? I know things around it are very shady, Paul told me. My theory is that he knew because he was connected to the people who took her, but not directly responsible. The finders come into play when you see the bottom of the deep web today and how much a child is worth. Bike gang snatches kid as payment, retribution, sells kid to someone that wants kid, someone has connection to three-letter agency, the rest is history. But really at this point, what good does it do to speculate? Whatever it was is too far and too deep for anyone to come out of it willingly. And the only one likely to tell you what really happened is gone. 
But when I've brought up other people, I challenge Paul, Mark loses his mind. Goes from crafty chess player to flashing that infamous Mark Vincent temper. So maybe I do believe other people were involved. Rumor is, I wrote, whatever he did, he confessed it to Rick. Paul remained unflappable. So we forgive, he wrote, because we must. But we don't forget, because we can't. Now my hackles were unabashedly up. Forgiveness requires repentance, I typed, fingers flying. False equivalency, Paul fired back. One can forgive without the offender even knowing they did wrong. Forgiveness exists for the offended. It has nothing to do with the offender. It releases the anger and offense, never the guilt. The offender feeling guilt is irrelevant to one's ability to forgive said offender. The Buddha, Paul told me, said that to hold anger is like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. Yeah, I've heard that quote before, I said. Hard to feel good about life when your little girl has likely rotted away somewhere under cold ground for decades. You think Mark feels guilt? Yes, I do, Paul responded. I see immense pain in him. Well, good, I shot back. I was really angry now. That he has no real love or joy in his life is on him, and the countless people he fucked over or pushed away, including your uncles and aunts and grandparents. I'm sorry, his fault. He's been a monster all his life. As I said, Paul wrote, too far and too deep. And right before he blocked me, here is what Paul wrote. Some people change in time. I'm sorry for you that you refuse to. So that's it. Mark has iced me out, and now so is Paul. But maybe they can talk about it together up in Johnson, Vermont, because that's where Mark is right now, where he was spirited away this past summer. That's right. Under the cloud of the arrest the cops have been promising literally for years, Mark has officially left the jurisdiction to reunite with Paul. And not only that, but Pastor Rick, longtime director of Teen Challenge Connecticut and Mark's best friend, is along for the ride. Because beyond Jesus, or Buddha, or the power of his own charm, Mark Hunter Vincent could always count on one place, Teen Challenge. Next time on Sticky Week. Walk, softly children. Children, find your freedom, little children.